This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes. She received a brown envelope and says, do not open it until you get on the plane. A series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They knew they were going to be caught, and actually that was sort of part of the plan. Unsung heroes, acts of resistance, deception and courage. That is a morning that is seared into my memory. I will never be able to forget the terror of that morning. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the 1630s, Japan was ruled by the Tokugawa shoguns, a military dynasty, who 30 years earlier had unified the country, ending around 200 years of civil war. However, in 1637, a rebellion broke out in the province of Shimabara, in the southeast of the country. It was a peasants' revolt, following a few years of bad harvests in which the local lord had refused to lower taxes. Many of the rebels were Christians, and they fought under a Christian banner. The central government response was merciless. They met the rebels with an army of 150,000 men, possibly the largest army assembled anywhere in the world during the early modern period. Once the rebellion had been suppressed, the shogun enforced a ban on Christianity and expelled nearly all foreigners from the country. Japan remained more or less completely sealed off from the rest of the world for the next 250 years. With me to discuss the Shimabara Rebellion are Satona Suzuki, lecturer in Japanese and modern Japanese history at SOAS, University of London, Erika Baffelli, Professor of Japanese Studies at the University of Manchester, and Christopher Harding, Senior Lecturer in Asian History at the University of Edinburgh. Christopher Harding, Christian missionaries first arrived in Japan in 1549. What was the political organisation of Japan at that time? So pretty chaotic, I would say. So by this point, Japan had been home for almost a thousand years to an imperial family. But probably from maybe the late 1100s onwards, they hadn't really wielded much power. So real power in Japan from that point is being wielded by samurai instead. So you have first a bakufu, a military government in uh, Kamakura for a while, and then after that you have another bakufu military government um, in the Muromachi district uh, of Kyoto. In theory, the shoguns, the bakufu, work for the emperor. Um, Shogun means something like barbarian crushing generalissimo. But in reality, the imperial family by this point have very little political power. And probably by the time that the missionaries get there in 1549, you could safely say that even the shoguns in uh, Kyoto haven't had much real power for a few decades. So real power in Japan by 1549 is spread right across the country. Japan is this patchwork quilt of different feudal domains. How many? Probably about 120 or so. Um, In each one, you have a feudal lord who owns the land. He's taxing it, often fighting with his neighbours or doing deals to try and expand his land. We call it actually in Japanese Sengoku Jidai, which means the Warring States era. And the aim, ideally, if you can, is to try and vanquish your enemies, make it to Kyoto, unify the country... But in 1549, that seems like a very distant prospect. What 
role did religion play in Japanese life at this time? So you've got three traditions in Japan which are mixing and mingling for centuries by this point. So the oldest would be Shinto, which means way of the gods. What that looks like uh, on the ground, for example, would be people worshipping uh, at local shrines, worshipping particular gods or kami. You have connection with the seasons. You have religious festivals, uh, matsuri. At the very top of society, the imperial family would claim to be uh, divinely descended from a sun goddess, Amaterasu. So that would be Shinto. Um, alongside that, Confucianism been in Japan for a few centuries uh, by this point. I think that's quite important for us because it's partly from Confucianism that you get a very high hierarchical society in Japan. Um, what that means is the, the senior partners, as it were, in a relationship, perhaps samurai to peasants or fathers to sons, um, owe a certain amount of benevolence to those who are below them. And if you go against that benevolence, if you lord it over people to too great a degree, it's considered to be a violation of virtue. And I think this connects up to what we'll be speaking about later last but not least Buddhism in Japan again for quite a few centuries by this point you could usefully split it up probably into older Buddhist sects and newer ones like a couple of Zen sects also a sect called Jodo Shinshu true pure land uh, Buddhism what's important about these I think is that they are tremendously powerful they've been involved in politics they're very wealthy they have warrior monks some of these sects that are working to defend their interests so if you want to unified Japan, you have to reckon with the power of Buddhism. Is Buddhism far and away the biggest of these uh, religions? What's interesting about the situation in Japan, I think, is that over these centuries, Buddhism and Shinto in particular have come together. So a lot of people in Japan wouldn't necessarily know whether particular deities or particular forms of worship or festivals are, strictly speaking, from this or that tradition. That's the core. If we're looking for a mass core religion, that's it. I think so. I mean, yeah, three hundred thousand Christians, which which seems sort of small, small time compared with millions and millions of Buddhists, doesn't it? Yeah, so probably fifteen or eighteen million people, the total population of Japan at, yeah. at this point. Yeah, but I, I don't think Shinto or Buddhism are really confessional in the way that European Christianity is. It's more a question of of culture, ritual, family, etc. Thank you, Erica. Erica Bafelli. The Christian missionaries arrived in fifteen forty nine. Who were they, and how did they go about the business of converting everybody else? Most of the missionary activities in the 16th and 17th century were done by Jesuits, and they were mainly Portuguese. And the delegation arriving in 1549 from Goa through Malacca and arriving in Kagoshima in the southern part of Japan included Francisco Xavier, and two other um, important uh, Jesuits, it was Cosmes de Torres and Juan Fernandez, and one interpreter. And an interpreter is an important character in the story because this interpreter was a Japanese man uh, called Anjiro or Yajiro, who fled Japan a few years back because he was accused of murder and escaped on a, on a Portuguese boat uh, to Malacca and then to Goa, converted to Christianity and met Francisco Xavier and converted and was baptized with the name of Paolo de Santa Fe. So Paolo was illiterate and knew very little about the religious landscape in Japan Chris was just talking about. So because of his very vague explanation of Buddhism, uh, this led the Jesuits to start using Buddhist term to translate Christian terminology at the beginning. 
So the word God, Deus, was translated with Dainichi, uh, which is the Japanese term for the Buddha Mahavarochana, the cosmic Buddha. And that led to a little bit of confusion because the two traditions are rather different, but Christianity was initially understood as a form of Buddhism. This issue about how to translate the Christian term uh, stayed for the entire for the entire mission, and later on, God was translated with Deusu, was just transliterated into Japanese. But this kind of issue about translating term and similarity and exchange with Buddhism continuous during during the mission. And at the beginning, the, the, they weren't particularly successful. Uh, Francisco Xavier attempted to have a meeting with the emperor in Kyoto and wasn't, didn't succeed. But eventually, they were able to convert some of the feudal lords, the daimyo, especially in the southern part of Japan. And what's one of the important ones for our discussions today is um, Arima Harinobu. There was the daimyo of Shimabara that who uh, converted to Christianity in 1580. So those, especially was that area and the area around Kyoto where the first conversion happened. What other Europeans were in Japan at the time? So Japan was a very interesting laboratory of cross-culture encounter at the mm -hmm. time. That the Portuguese merchants arrived a few years before the Jesuits, and they they were very much welcomed, weren't they? they Their were, trade was lucrative. But especially the Jesuits became very important mediator of commerce with with the Portuguese merchants, because the, the Portuguese merchants were bringing silk and spices from India, but also gunpowder and firearms for Europe. So that was in the in. 1570, the Jesuits had disagreement with the Hizen province where Nagasaki became the main port of trade, transforming Nagasaki in, in a very important city of the area. Things changed a bit later on in 1590 where other European players arrived. The Dutch. Uh, the Dutch, but also well, the, the other Christians, the Franciscan, the, the, uh, the Spanish missionaries from Philippines, they were competition, but also the Dutch, and those were Protestant merchants, so they were less interested in, in proselytism. I see, thank you. Satona Suzuki, um, this was a period of the three great unifiers, a succession of warlords who sought to unify Japan. The first of these was Oda Nobunaga, 1534 to 1582. Who was he and what was his political project? So Oda Nobunaga uh, was born into a um, warlord's uh, family uh, in Owari. So that is sort of situated in um, central Japan, somewhere between Tokyo and Osaka today. And he managed to unify that region when he was about 25 or so. And then after defeating his political enemy or rival, Imagawa Yoshimoto, he embarked on this uh, journey of unification of Japan. His ambition was cut short by his well, assassination, or he actually committed suicide because of the betrayal of his very close um, one of his men, uh, Akechi Mitsuhide. But it is no exaggeration to say that he laid the foundations for the unification of Japan. He was said to have been very charismatic, very bold, decisive, also pragmatic, and sometimes very ruthless or merciless. And he really liked the new things. He had no qualms for adopting new things, such as Christianity and also trading with the Portuguese and the Spaniards. The reason why he protected Christianity was because, you know, it was 
connected with trade. You know, he wanted firearms and gunpowder, so he used them in the battles and revolutionized the way they fought in the battle. Another reason why he protected Christianity was he thought that Christianity could be used to counter Buddhism, especially true Pure Land sect or Jodo Shinshu. Their followers are very faithful and they organized a lot of uprisings against the authorities. Thank you. The second great unifier was Toyotomi Hideyoshi, 1537-1598. How did he come to power? Toyotomi Hideyoshi, unlike Oda Nobunaga, he was born into a, a family of peasant. So he worked his way up because anything was up for grabs at the time because of, you know, warring states period. He started his life as a foot soldier and a sandal bearer of Nobunaga. Sandal bearer. Yes, uh, <laughs> for <laughs> Nobunaga. He was very strategic, very smart, and also had very good communication skills. So he came to prominence quite relatively quickly, and he earned his uh, Nobunaga's trust, and he became daimyo, even the lord, eventually. And then after Nobunaga's death, he defeated Akechi Mitsuhide, who was responsible for Nobunaga's death and also many other uh, political rivals, including to Tokugawa Ieyasu, who was the final unifier. So after he defeated all these political enemies, he carried on with what Nobunaga had started, i.e. the unification of Japan. So he carried out uh, several reforms, including sword hunt, so he banned anyone other than samurai from carrying swords and spears, so basically disarming the peasants, because samurai used to rule or govern peasants directly, and they sometimes worked on the land as well. But by separating these two, Hideyoshi made samurai professional soldiers, and then peasants were bound to the land, and they were responsible for paying taxes. And also his legitimacy was confirmed by the imperial house. In 1585, he was appointed as the Kampaku, that means chief advisor of the emperor. And later on, he was also appointed as Dajo Daijin, that means grand minister of state. So his legitimacy was, you know, his position was legitimized by the imperial house. So moving towards the unification, Chris Harding, um, who was the next one who took over this mantle of attempting, seemed to be a general attempt, not a general, particular attempt to unify Japan. We've had two of the great shoguns. Who's the third? Absolutely. So the third is Tokugawa Ieyasu. And there's a lovely little rhyme that school children in Japan sometimes learn, which is, Oda Nobunaga pounded the rice, Hideyoshi Toyotomi baked the cake, and Tokugawa Ieyasu ate it. So the time to eat the cake uh, comes in 1600, the Battle of Sekigahara, this great coming together of an Eastern army and a Western army. Tokugawa Ieyasu is the victor to all intents and purposes. That's it. That's the end of the Sengoku era, and he's triumphed. But it's important, I think, to realise that you've got at least half of the feudal laws of Japan forced to accept that rather than being particularly happy about that. And so for the next few decades, the Tokugawa family, they try to establish themselves as a new bakufu. Tokugawa Ieyasu becomes a shogun. They're quite unstable. They're quite fragile. They have to be careful about enemies still around and about in Japan. So 
what he does in those early years politically, having taken the title of shogun, Tokugawa Ieyasu then stations troops in Kyoto to make sure that the emperor doesn't become the focal point of a rebellion uh, against him. He launches what we think is probably the largest redistribution of land in Japanese history, taking land away from some of his old enemies, moving others around to try and keep them as weak as possible. All the feudal lords now have to pledge allegiance to the shogun, have to sign up to a code for the military houses. And then they use, um, a little bit later on, something called sunkin kōtai, which means alternate attendance. It's really just a rather decorous term for a hostage system. So in any one year, either the feudal lord himself from each domain will have to be resident in Edo, which is the new capital of Japan, or his wife and heir will have to be in Edo, where they're under the watchful eye of the Tokugawa. So it's sort of to ensure good behaviour uh, all around the country. In addition to being quite a useful uh, surveillance tool, it's also quite a good way of keeping these rivals poor. It costs an awful lot of money to have two households, one in Edo, one back in your home domain, and to make that journey in a suitably large retinue so often. So if you put that alongside all the other things that the shogun makes these feudal lords do, like repairing damaged buildings, repairing roads, etc., it's a way of, as I say, trying to keep your rivals poor, making it very difficult for them to launch any potential uprising against you. Erica, why do they want to suppress Christianity? On paper, it seems such a small number. It's an interesting aspect because for Oda Nobunaga, the issue were not Christianity. He was actually quite supportive at the beginning because his problem were the Buddhist groups. So they saw Christians as a potential allies. And initially, Hideyoshi had a similar attitude, was quite welcoming or supportive. But at one point, the attitude changed quite brutally in, in 5087, where the first edit of expulsion of the Baterin, that was the name used to indicate the padres, the priest. But it's important to remember that at the beginning, it wasn't really enforced, that expulsion. And the problem seems to be that the priest or the daimyo converted more than the people practicing. So the, initially, those edits was targeted. But under Hideyoshi, we also have one of the most brutal episodes of, of martyrdom in, in 1597, where 26 Christians were crucifixed in, in Nagasaki. And and some of them were priests, but a large number of them were native Japanese uh, converted. Why he changed his mind is still up to a debate between historians. Uh, was probably a series of reasons, including wanting to, you know, the, the commerce control, the, so the, the role that, or mediator of commerce that the Jesuit was, was becoming a bit problematic. His interest in Buddhism was probably one of the other reasons. Ieyasu introduced another edict in, in 612, but again, it was not particularly enforced. It was, at the beginning, basically ignored. The escalation in, in the suppression of Christianity escalated later on with his successor uh, in 1614, added, and then Iemitsu, especially, who, who is the daimyo related to the Shimabara rebellion. And then we have an escalation on the suppression of, of Christianity. But is the early edit of expulsion was not really particularly enforced. I see. So, Tona, um, how did the shoguns maintain their grip of power in the early years? So I think we have to sort of determine what 
kind of power they had. So economic and military, to be precise. So economic, because the Bakuhu had the largest amount of land, hence the largest amount of income. Right, so they are the beneficiary of tax on some 25% of all land, so that's quite massive. And military power because they are together with the shimpan, that's the uh, Tokugawa family and relatives, and also Fudai Daimyo, that's like the in-group Daimyo who uh, had been faithful to Tokugawa family. So allies even before the Battle of Sekigahara in 1600, which determined, you know, Tokugawa's hegemony and also his own retainers and men. So together, he could mobilize something like 200,000 200, men. So that's a massive military power. So that sort of silenced the dissident daimyo. I was just wanting to go back of these mm. uh, different strategies of the Tokugawa to control the country, because at the end they rule only only over a small part of it. Mm. And the role of Buddhism, that Buddhists started playing into this, which is related with controlling Christianity. Mm. The compulsory registration to Buddhist temple that was introduced towards the Tokugawa initially was only in a certain area, and it was used as a way for people to register as non-Christians, because they were given a certificate, but later will be extended to the entire country and was a way used by the government to control the population to the temples because they were basically uh, registering birth, marriage, funerals. All households had to register to the local temple. But the registration was usually done by conveniences, so that the, the temple you were close to, uh, not necessarily by faith or particular interest in, in one sect or the other. So going back to the discussion about how affiliation to Buddhism uh, was discussed at the time. Can we now turn to the uh, rebellion, the Shimabara rebellion in 1637, Chris? Mm. Can you give us a little background on that and then let's discuss it and its repercussions? Yeah, I think the geography of Japan briefly is probably worth establishing here. So the southernmost island, the southernmost main island of Japan, Kyushu, is where lots of this Portuguese trade has been happening and most of the missionary activity has been happening there as well. That's where Nagasaki is. Shimabara Domain is about 25 miles east of Nagasaki. Um, and it's easily the most Christian part of Japan. That's where most of the Jesuit activity has gone on. They've had seminaries, they've had schools, printing presses, um, etc. So when these moves are made, as Erica says, ramping up bit by bit to try and suppress Christianity. The, the, the really intense part of Japan where that could potentially go quite badly wrong is in Kyushu because you have such a, a large proportion of the population who are Christian. And in Shimabara domain, um, by this point, uh, by the 1630s, it's being controlled by a non-Christian daimyo uh, called Matsukura Katsuie. He and his father have become infamous locally for really squeezing the local peasantry uh, for tax. We were talking about status a moment ago. There's always been a sense in this era that the samurai are miles ahead, miles over the peasantry in terms of their status. So that, in a sense, you can squeeze them like seeds, was one of the phrases used at the time. But Matsukura, um, Katsuye, and his father uh, are really dishing out some extraordinary punishments when people can't or won't pay their tax. So to give you an example, what's called the Mino dance they'll make someone do. So the peasant 
put on his uh, winter coat made of straw, they'll tie his hands behind his back and then set him on fire. Other punishments include being thrown into a snake pit, boiled in a sulphurous spring, cut with bamboo saws. And these are amounts of tax that some people simply can't pay, especially 1634 to 1637 you have a series of quite bad harvests. Usually in Japan, that's dealt with quite pragmatically. If it's a bad harvest, then your local feudal lord will not ask for as much tax as he might have done before. The Matsukura family, notoriously, don't go in for that kind of reasonable negotiation. So by the end of 1637, you've got some very dry tinder in Shimabara domain. And there's arguments about what it is that provides the final spark. One uh, version of events is that in December 1637, a particular farmer in Arima village is forced to watch uh, his daughter being tortured by uh, the local uh, magistrate, the local samurai, and either the daughter's father or other bystanders get so enraged they kill uh, these samurai who were doing this. And then that kind of rebellion spreads through the villages where people are attacking the local sources uh, of authority, fighting the local samurai. And on, at least on one estimate, uh, you've got about 45,000 people living in this domain. Within a few weeks, as many as 23,000 are up in arms. And then that spreads southwards to the Amakusa Islands nearby. So this thing is really starting to build up momentum December into January of 1638. So, so it's on its way, this rebellion? Yes. <laughs> and as you say, it's taken up. Who takes it up first and how does it, can you tell us a bit more about how it grows? I, I think one of the things that's quite contentious about the Shimabara Rebellion is whether it is primarily even purely economic because people are being squeezed in this way uh, for their tax money and whether there is also a sense of illegitimacy about what's going on you know to come back to that point about confucianism early on although you owe duty upwards to whoever is the senior person in the relationship you know your father or feudal lord whoever it might be benevolence is supposed to pass the other way so if you have people like the matsukura family and their samurai minions behaving like that a sense of grievance builds up quite quickly and because some of these people are still on the quiet christians if you've had your religion banned you may not necessarily feel religiously motivated at the beginning but the symbols of your religion become really powerful symbols of resistance and that seems to be what starts to build up. You get banners, white banners with a black chalice and the communion wafer above it, angels on either side. Um, and I'm sure in a moment we'll be talking about this interesting figure, Amakusa Shiro, um, who is cleverly portrayed. We don't really know for sure much about him, but certainly portrayed as a quasi-messianic figure uh, to lead the rebels uh, as, this, as this thing starts to build over the winter. Well, let's talk about him now, Erika. Amakusa Shiro. We know very little about his historically, but he appeared in so many narratives from the rebels, from the non-Christian peasant, from the Tokugawa side. And what we know is that he was probably the son of a samurai from the Arima that was under the Arima council who converted to Christianity. Uh, this, his mom, we only know her, her uh, Martha, her Christian's name, so she was also a Christian. His name was probably Masuda Shiro. Apparently, when the uprising started, he was 15 or 16. So there are also um, concern about what it actually was his role in the uprising. But what is interesting, how central he became to the narrative on both sides, in a sense that he became this kind of leader, leader figure, and because 
because his details are so obscure, he became the embodiment of, of a prophecy for the, the rebel side of this kind of son of God, a semi-divine figure portrayed of exceptional beauty. He was an infant prodige, able to read Japanese without being taught and also able to speak Portuguese and to read Latin. And from the other side as the embodiment of evil, a sorcerer that was doing black magic. It seems that he was present on all the main events of, of the rebellion. So he was definitely gaining the symbolic role of the rebellion. It strikes me that we've been talking about the shoguns having huge armies, if they want, at their disposal. <coughs> Yet, uh, as it were, a peasant's revolt seems to tumble the whole thing down. How did, why was that so important? How did they manage to tackle the forces against them? Basically, the Tokugawa Bakufu was made up of many domains, right? They're allowed to govern their territory autonomously, more or less, but they had to govern it harmoniously because any social unrest was not allowed because that's not good for the government too. So all this uh, in Shimabara rebellion was a massive social unrest, so it had to be suppressed. So at the beginning, the central government sent Itakura Shigemasa, uh, the daimyo, and then Itakura went there and then gathered the daimyo in Kyushu and trying to suppress the rebellion. But the rebels fought really hard, resisted, and so Itakura just basically could not contain the situation. So the government then sent Roju, uh, Matsudaira Nobutsuna. Uh, he was the elder, very high-ranking official in the, in the government. And also Matsukura also asked the Dutch to help them. Um, which they did. They bombarded the uh, the castle that uh, the rebels were um, hiding. Yes. What part did Ara Castle play in this, Chris? So initially when the rebellion gets going, what some of the rebels want to try to do is to take hold of Shimabara Castle, which is this quite new castle which has been built off the backs of the poor in some of the ways that we were just talking about. But that castle is quite well defended. They don't manage to take it. And so, as you say, they go to a different castle, Hara Castle, which is where this final dramatic siege takes place. It hasn't been used for a while, and when the rebels get there... They're having to do what they can with bits and pieces of wood to try and refit it, put it back together again. But it's quite easy to defend in the sense that on three sides, all you've got is a sheer drop of cliffs down to the ocean. So you don't have to worry about that. What you have to worry about is slightly more than a kilometre at the front. Um, but in front of that is marshy land. The outer wall of the castle is about 30 metres high. So if you've got enough uh, food water, ammunition, etc. You can hold out there for quite a long time and there's a fresh water well inside the castle, you know, so you're okay um, for water. But as Satsuma says, um, you have two sets of armies, one after the other, sent by the Bakufu to try to uh, take the rebels out. And the first army sent Itakura, as you say, it's really embarrassing that they fail as badly as they do. To come back to that point about status in Japan, for a samurai army, thousands of samurai, to fail to successfully take on a basically a peasant rabble in a castle is extraordinarily embarrassing and actually quite dangerous for the Tokugawa, this new regime in Edo for their reputation. 
There are stories of Itakura sending in uh, ninja uh, into the castle to act as spies. One of them gets caught because he doesn't speak the local dialect. They try and tunnel under Hara Castle, but the rebels hear it and they fill it with smoke and feces and urine. They try and get labourers to build these artillery towers. That doesn't work because the rebels uh, stone them. So that's a big failure. And Itakura has this last, doesn't he, this last hurrah when he hears that this more senior person, Matsudaira, has been sent out to essentially do his job for him. And he goes there for a direct attack um, and he gets shot in the head uh, and killed. So when the more senior guy, Matsudaira, gets there in the middle of February, it's really damage limitation. He's told, don't try and attack the castle straight away because if we lose any more samurai, we're just going to look even worse. And so there's the decision to lay a siege. Uh, and as part of that, just to pick up on what you were saying, Satana, about trying to get the Dutch, who are based nearby in Hidaro, to come and essentially help them out. So the Dutch send a ship just off the coast and they start bombarding um, Hara Castle. It doesn't entirely work out. Some of the cannonballs go over the top and hit the Tokugawa forces. Three Dutchmen are killed in the process. One is shot down from a mast. He kills someone else on his way down. A third person dies when a cannonball uh, explodes. And then some of the rebels start firing arrows out from Hara Castle into the Tokugawa forces with little messages attached, essentially saying, what, you need foreigners to fight your battles. How embarrassing. And so in the end, red faced, the Dutch have, the Dutch have to be uh, essentially set home and it's a waiting game. And in the end, as you can probably imagine, it comes down to hunger. So by the beginning of April 1638, fresh water, obviously not a problem. Food stocks are very, very low. Ammunition is low. And it's got to the point where some of the rebels, hundreds of them, one night under cover of darkness, try and steal out of the castle to see what they can forage from Tokugawa forces, ammunition, food, etc. Um, sadly, many of them are caught. We think that perhaps the fire from the top of their matchlock rifles gives them away in the dark. Hundreds are killed. And then when day breaks, the Tokugawa forces look at their corpses, they can see how malnourished they are. And they actually cut open some of these guys to look at the stomachs to see what their last meal was. And there's no rice in it. Barley, seaweed, leaves, etc. And so at that point, Matsudaira decides, right, we can launch an all-out assault on the castle, which they do um, on the 11th of April. And you get two or three days of fierce fighting. You know, some of the rebels have got matchlock uh, firearms, but most of them have got scythes or spears, accounts even of cooking pots and cauldrons. They're trying to hit these well-armed samurai over the head with. Uh, and after a couple of days of this, anyone who can't escape from the castle, and we're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of people, are executed, men, women and children. Thank you. Satona, we've heard a little bit, well, a bit of quite uh, shattering about how the central government reacted to the rebels. Do you want to develop that? Uh, yes, like Chris said, uh, everyone, every single rebel was killed, including Amakusashiro, the leader, this, you know, young Amakusashiro. Um, he was beheaded and also his um, head was on display. It's like a warning to people, like, if you rebel against the government or the authority, these are the consequences. And also, the government punished the feudal lords of uh, Shimabara and also Amakusa. So the Shimabara uh, feudal lords, um, Mat uh, Matsukura Katsuye, this ruthless <laughs> mm. ruler, uh, oppressive ruler, his land was confiscated and he was also beheaded as well as a punishment. So basically, the rebellion started because of their oppressive rule. So they had to be responsible for that. 
So that was like a warning for the feudal lords too. If you don't govern your territory harmoniously, this could happen to you. So it was, it was warning for the people and warning for the、uh, feudal lords. Then the government realized that. I mean, they had already started to ban Christianity bit by bit, but then they sort of reaffirmed that you know Christianity is dangerous, so we must ban it completely. Erica.、Um Can we bring religion into this, or is it too late? <laughs> <laughs> what was the role of Christianity in all、mm. of this? So, what is a revolt that was due with overtaxation and and the famine, or was also the the persecution of Christianity in that domain that also you know plays a role in this? And this is up to debate and very difficult to assess. But definitely, the rebel appropriated Christian symbols, imaginary. You mentioned the banner, and so it was this banner with.、Uh, Sentences in, in medieval Portuguese,、uh, meaning the praises to be the holiest sacrament. But another important element is、uh, is that a lot of these samurai was what they were called tachikairi Christian. They were return Christian, born again, if we could use that expression. So again, going back to the very early points about affiliation, lots of them converted under their previous daimyo, that was a Christian one, and then. They converted during the、uh, Tokugawa, the beginning of the Tokugawa, and then converted again.、Uh, so there is much more complex identity of what meant to be a Christian or be an apostate at the time,、uh, which I think played a role in the identity of of those of those rebels. So difficult to work out precisely what the role of Christianity was in this. It's very much in the interests of the Bakufu afterwards to say, yes, this was、um, Christian. It was probably involving a degree of、uh, Strategy, perhaps from the Portuguese men and munitions, even alongside these Ronin, these masterless samurai. If you say that it's Christian in character and that these despicable foreign Catholic powers have been involved, it makes sense because this is Kyushu, the most Christian part of the country formerly, and it also then suggests that nowhere else in Japan could this happen. You don't want peasants in other parts of Japan getting the idea that well, if we band together, take a castle, hold out for a bit, we can really embarrass the the Bakufu. So it's in their interest, in their official histories, to say that it was a Christian rebellion, which I think rather makes it complicated, doesn't it? But the big thing and the dramatic thing was that very soon after this ended,、um, Japan banned all foreigners from Japan except a few Dutch、uh, traders. Uh, and, and that held for more than two hundred years. It, now that's fascinating. Can you tell us how that came about? First of all, and then the rest of you, how it was implemented. So I think it's part of this official Tokugawa narrative, as it were, soon after the rebellion, that it was down to. Christians, it was down to foreign influence, etc. So, in July 1639, they、uh, issue an edict which blames the Portuguese in large part for the Shimabara、uh, rebellion. The Portuguese are then banned from Japan on pain of death, and rather gamely, the Portuguese test the ban almost immediately. They send a ship. Back to Japan、uh, from Macau, and the Tokugawa officials really make their point rather clear. They slaughter sixty of the people on that ship. They burn the ship. They burn the cargo, and they send a few people creeping back to Macau with a message which essentially says, even if the Buddha or the God of the Christians tries to contravene this prohibition. They will pay with their heads. So they're awfully clear that they're having nothing more to do with the Portuguese, and. All that's left, at least for Western traders,、um, are the Dutch, who has to be said don't always 
come out of the story terribly well. They're willing to fire on fellow Christians in Harrow Castle. And then afterwards, they try to put the minds at rest of the Tokugawa who to say, look, we're here to trade not interested in uh, religion, we're also not interested in playing politics. So the Japanese will deal just with the Dutch and they confine them to this small artificial island of Dejima in Nagasaki Har Harbour where they can keep you know, a really close eye on them. I think it's important probably to say also that Chinese, Korean, other Asian uh, nations are still trading with Japan. So this idea of Japan shutting itself completely closed have to be quite careful about, but certainly when it comes to Western powers, it's just the Dutch. I think the point is that the, the Tokugawa didn't necessarily in, in excluded all the international relationship, but they controlled them. There exactly. was a very strict control of the border and who can enter and, and have contact with Japan. But even internally, they controlled traveling inside the country as well. It wasn't easier to travel freely around Japan during, during the Tokugawa. You needed a permit to, to do that. But they also didn't eradicate Christianity, as is always portrayed that the Shimabara Rebellion eradicated Christianity from Japan, but it didn't. A Christian community continues um, as uh, underground Christian, they are usually called, or hidden Christian, the Kakori Christian. They didn't have a central authority. Uh, yeah, there was not the Vatican sending letter. <laughs> there were not Jesuit padres there anymore. Allow them to develop very interesting and new form of, of ritual and practice where these guys in Buddhist statues as Christians one or using this anti-Buddhist funeral ritual um, uh, that they are very innovative is a kind of a very interesting form of adaptation in, in, in a different context that we wouldn't have had without this kind of experience of non-contact with, with the European uh, missionaries uh, on, on those 200 years. Uh, yes, but in, they, to, to take the broader impact of this 200 years, they, the Japanese fell behind all sorts of technological advances and let's call it the West, all sorts of things that were happening, they were isolated. What did that mean to them? During the Sakoku, or national isolation period, because you know the, the, the West had already experienced the Industrial Revolution and they started to modernize, so technologically Japan was very behind, for sure. But culturally, I think art seeing throbe, uh, you know, something really unique to Japan, such as ukiyo-e, the woodblock prints, uh, ceramics, uh, lacquerware, and also like some literary works. Those things actually throve massively. But uh, Japan paid a price when, especially when the the world entered the era of imperialism in the 19th century. National isolation was not sustainable because you know Japan was technologically very behind. And, you know, when America knocked on the door against the mighty Western powers, Japan had no, no choice than to open up and agree to trade, which was an unequal treaty as well. So it became the object of Western imperialism. Final word, Chris? I think if you look at what's going on in Europe in those centuries, from the middle of the 17th century into the middle of the 19th, Japan avoids an awful lot of bloodshed. I'd want to echo what Satana says about the the wonderful flourishing of the arts in places like Edo, Osaka and Kyoto. So there's woodblock prints, uh, kabuki theatre. Often Japanese of the modern era will look back on the Tokugawa era as being a kind of ideal where there was peace, there was security, people were happy, there was a, a strong sense of national identity. That might have been one with a considerable amount of blood at Hara Castle, but lots of Japanese today would really celebrate it. 
Well, thank you all very much. Uh, thank you, Christopher Harding, <coughs> Satana Suzuki, and Erica Baffelli, and our studio engineer, Jackie Majora. Next week, Virgil's Georgics, his poem about rural life and labour. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What did you not say that you'd like to say, Erica? I don't know about Amatkuta Shirwa. Do we need to add a little bit more about his semi-divine characters? Uh, or I think was enough, right? Well, but because we, we don't know much about him. So yeah. it's difficult to... It's it's going to be speculation anyway, so I think that's okay. It's a lot of it, his narrative yeah. of being yeah. modelled on the life of Jesus, <laughs> in, in a sense, of doing oh, miracles. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, this is what we have about him. In the Gospels... Oh, oh, sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah. The I, fact I, that I Luke was supposed to have gone to the Far East, wasn't he? I think that's partly why um, the Jesuits are so optimistic early on. Erica, you were talking about Angelo, this informant who says, yet in Japan, yeah, we have altars, bells, rosaries. There's this great figure in the past, um, a teacher who taught this wonderful ethical system. And some of the Jesuits think, yes, this is a kind of distant, imperfect memory of some kind of evangelism that's happened. And so when they find out that's not true things get so ugly don't they between christians and buddhists and when the uh, when when the missionaries move to use the word deus in latin for god some of the buddhists very offended start talking about not deus but diuso which means great lie in mm. japan <laughs> and they're really at each other's throats uh, for a bit i think also what's interesting from that early period is why some of the tactics that might work elsewhere in the world for missionary work don't work in japan so if you think about the early Jesuits going around in Europe in sort of sackcloth, making mm. a big thing out of poverty, some of them tried to dress like that when they go and see some of these great feudal lords, the daimyo. And in Japan, if you can't dress for a meeting, you know, it's fundamentally insulting. So it's quite a steep learning curve, isn't it, for those missionaries early on? I think that's a, it's a fascinating period. Uh, I think there was a, an, one of the issues was mistrust. Reciprocal. So some of the Jesuits never really felt they could completely trust the Japanese converter. Their approach was really top down. Convert the daimyo and then all the subjects will just convert. So it was mass conversion, quantity over quality, (laughs) where then resulted in these people quickly became apostasies when they needed to. So, the, And from the Japanese side, some of the Christian always felt to be second-class mm. Christian, especially during Cabral. Mm. So there was a very different... You know, at the beginning of the mission, Xavier Torres, they were really optimistic about what's happening. Francisco Cabral, completely different. He had a very negative uh, view of, of, of the opportunity in Japan. And then Alessandro Valignano was again much more, you know, he brought the printed press and he was really strong in his idea of accommodation. That was the, you know, the Jesuit, the accommodatio uh, approach. But it was late, yeah. in in a sense. So the Cabral, in particular, was the one that has a lot of discussion about how to dress yes. and how to present yourself and how much you should adapt to the local custom. And he wasn't really strong on that. <laughs> so he he fled Japan as soon as he could <laughs> and, and went went to Goa. And it, it's quite sweet. You can almost imagine some of these encounters because when when you get to Alessandro Valignano era, he gets told by local feudal lords, "Look, if you lot turn up and you you smell your personal 
personal hygiene is bad, you haven't washed your clothes properly, and then you say you're superior to us in all these sorts of ways, you're just not going to be taken seriously. So the Jesuits get told when they go to Japan, you learn how to use chopsticks, you take small bites, you don't keep livestock in your house, because all these things, the Japanese think it's disgusting, and they're not going to trust anything you say about these big questions if you can't even get the, the personal basics right. So I, I just love this idea of the Jesuits just not being Jesuit taken seriously. Jesuits wrote all those letters, right? Yeah. So we, and there is this severe letter about Angelo saying he was a homo idiota. Yeah. He was an ignorant man. So but they it, were... You know, the, the Portuguese and the Spaniards were referred to as Nambanjing. That means southern barbarians. So, and the Dutch and the uh, Dutch and the, uh, the British, you know, they're called Mogojing, right? Red-haired men. Yeah. Because many of the Dutch <laughs> and the British had red hair apparently. Yeah, you get a period where some of the uh, Japanese mothers will threaten their children that if they don't behave they'll set a Dutchman on them because the Dutch wore clogs, they thought that their heels didn't naturally touch the ground so they must yeah, be yeah. sort of goblins or demons or something so uh, yeah, it didn't take them entirely yeah, seriously yeah. It's a wonderful clash of cultures isn't it yeah. across this period, it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating few yeah. decades And that was that really <coughs> they, they, this isolation was imposed in a draconian manner, was it? Absolutely. So it's a di dictatorship, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think so. And, Mainly. You know, I suppose one thing, we, I can't remember if we mentioned this or not, but Japanese who try to leave the country without permission, mm. if you come back, you'll be executed. This is the producer, mm. Lucas, walked in menacingly. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Get my cup of tea. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rylan, and I'm here to talk about men. Because in recent years, we have all seen the man in Britain undergo radical change as the rule book has been well and truly ripped apart. So I'm going to talk to a range of prominent figures and celebs who have each got their own diverse and contrasting takes on what it means to be a man today. I want to prise open the fault lines of modern masculinity and get to grips with the changing landscape and try to get some answers so that we can pass them on to the next generation. This is Ryland, How to Be a Man, from BBC Radio 4. Listen on BBC Sounds. People who know me think I'm dead. An original drama starring Rosamund Pike and Hugh Laurie. Dear Emily, I had to write. I might be dying, you see. A story about lies and love in the face of death. Emmy, I remember how much of a coward you are. How you used a terrorist attack to run away from your mess and fake your own death. I'm the only one who knows the truth. People Who Knew Me, a 10-part series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.